0: Well, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to thank you for your word. Thank you for the things we've been learning about through uh, these letters to the churches. And we come to this fairly vital one this morning, one that perhaps strikes right at the heart of the problems afflicting many churches. And please... Help us to hear uh, this difficult message and help us uh, to know that you are with us. And, of course, we pray for your reviving of the church here and throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been working our way through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, following these messages from the risen Lord Jesus. And you'll know that this morning we're coming to consider the message to the church in the city of Sardis. And you'll know too that each of the four messages we've looked at so far have varied according to need and the spiritual health of each of the churches. The church in Ephesus was backsliding and needed correcting. The church in Smyrna was suffering and needed encouraging. The church in Pergamum was compromised and needed rebuking. The church at Thyatira was on its last legs and needed awakening. And now we find that the church at Sardis was dead and needed reviving. Dead. Not caught in the downward spiral of backsliding, dead. Dead. Not sinking beneath terrible suffering, dead. Not caught in the grip of compromise, dead. Not facing an early exit, dead. It might have had the appearance of looking alive. But can it enter your head? The church was dead. Dead. Three things we note as we continue along, asking the question, what does Jesus think of his church? First, we see that Jesus spoke to them of the dangerous deception of appearances. Think for a moment how it was when Samuel looked at Jesse's eldest son. He thought he was seeing the next king of Israel, but that wasn't so. Think too when David's son Absalom gained the hearts of the people because of his looks and put himself forward as the next king of God's people. But again, appearances were of no consequence to God. Not all that glitters is gold. And not all that has the appearance of life is living. And the case is proved in the church at Sardis which received this wake-up call, this revival call from the Lord of the Church. Verses 1 to 2 start, well, when we hear Jesus say, I know your works. And if we took those words just as they are, we might conclude that these works looked good. After all, he did commend the church at Ephesus, among some others we've noted, for their works, And we've even noted the kind of works that these churches have produced. Faithful witness to the truth. Perseverance in the face of persecution being some of them. But here Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead and that changes the game altogether, doesn't it? Here was a church with a reputation But the reputation was without substance. It was probably a man-made reputation. Now this is not the same as what Jesus said to the churches in Pergamum or Thyatira, who had a problem with false teachers and sexual immorality and food offered to idols. There's none of that mentioned here. There's no compromise. There's no trouble with error. There's no threat of persecution, there's no threat from false prophets. The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans and the followers of Jezebel apparently have no place in this church either. And neither is there, you might notice, any external threat from persecution. The people of the city of Sardis do not seem to be troubling those who have attached themselves to the local church this, insofar as the other churches were concerned in the region, was a vital, thriving church in an enviable situation. But appearances can be deceiving. They looked alive. The word around town was that they were healthy and vibrant. But the word from Jesus, the one who knows all, you're dead. He could see what no one else could see. After all, he is the one who presents himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. And we are told that the seven stars are the seven spirits of God, which I take to be a reference to the full measure of the Holy Spirit, referring to Jesus' complete knowledge of all things everywhere. He knows the truth about the church at Sardis even when the church at Sardis has done a number on on everyone else. Maybe we could surmise that there was plenty of work going on apparently in this church, no doubt. There were maybe even committees and meetings of all kinds. The lights were on. The car park was the word around town was that if you want to go to a good church go to the church at Sardis but what counts is not what people say about the church what counts is what the Lord Jesus thinks under the microscope of divine scrutiny under the unblinking gaze of Jesus who says to the church I know your works, but your works are incomplete. They were busy, but little to show for it, active, but fruitless. Now, why is that, and how can that happen? After all our hard work, after all our efforts, what might cause our works to be incomplete? Well, we thought already about John 15. When Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit and apart from me you can do, what's the next word? Nothing. So what's the reason for fruitless labor? Just what Psalm 127 tells us. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. Nothing bears fruit, lasting fruit, apart from being connected to him. Churches may look alive, but if the branches become disconnected from the vine, then the greenery you might notice upon it will not only die, but it will produce no fruit and will end up being burned in the fire. That's one reason. The other might be found through the implication of Jesus' words in verse 4, that some in the church had not soiled their garments. The Greek historian Herodotus records that the inhabitants of the city of Sardis had a reputation that had grown over the years for lax moral standards, and open licentiousness. Now we've noted that in Pergamum and Thyatira that sexual immorality was an open secret where false teachers were leading believers to practice it openly. But we don't find that in the letter to the church at Sardis. See, Sardis was clean and respectable on the outside. No open secrets of sexual immorality, only Hidden ones. A secret defilement. Real, but hidden away. And let's call it for what it was. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's say what it is. It's sin. What causes a church to be dead? It's sin. What kills the life of a church? It's sin. What causes the spiritual life there to become a mere form, an an appearance? It's sin. What causes the life of the vine to be cut off? Sin. What causes the fruit to be incomplete, lifeless and dead? Sin. Where there ought to be signs of life and growth and health, there is sin. If there's any fruit, the fruit is fake. If there's any activity, it's just going through the motions. If there's any purity, it's more like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke of, clean on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Here again what Jesus says to them, I know your works, you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead and you know in all probability That's the real reason there was no false teaching in Sardis. That's the real reason there was no persecution in Sardis. The truth is Satan doesn't need to worry about this church. He doesn't need to send sly peddlers of subtle heresy to confuse and divide the church or deploy the brutality of political pressure and persecution to weaken or wound the church see it's no threat to him at all as one old preacher used to say there's no trouble in a graveyard and that's why there was no trouble in Sardis it had become a spiritual graveyard which by the way ought to be a little bit comforting to us don't you think For the most part, I think we're a happy, unified congregation by God's grace, but there is a sign of life. Surely, when we have trouble, we have struggles, we have difficulties, we have sometimes conflicts, but there are signs of life and growth. And so by the grace of God, we can say we're not quite there yet, That's not happening at Sardis. They had a reputation for being alive but dead and that's a warning that Jesus wants us to hear clearly that it is possible, it is possible to have all the outward appearance of life but by his estimation have a spiritual flat line, no vital signs, no spiritual pulse to look like, to function like a church, but actually not be alive. What a terrible and perilous situation to find ourselves in. Secondly, see here that Jesus spoke to them of the sure road of recovery. How can a church that's dead be refreshed, renewed, revitalised, even resurrected because that's what we're looking at, isn't it? Jesus tells them to do five things. First, he says, wake up, verses 2 and 3. There's to be watchfulness. He isn't asking the believers to do something novel or unique to their own situation. He's calling them to the most fundamental habit that characterizes every true child of God, and that's a daily, regular walk with him with their eyes opened, not sleeping. Paul captures this idea in Romans 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Wake up. Be spiritually awake. Stop dozing contentedly, even if you are in the light. An appearance of Christian life isn't enough. And he warns them to wake up, for he will come against them like a thief in the night. Not for them, not for them to take them home to glory, but against them as a thief, as in judgment, and to cause loss. Are you awake? If not, wake up. Secondly, he calls them to be strong. He calls them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. We heard from Hebrews 12 today that the writer said, strengthen your weak knees. No matter how bad things have become in Sardis, as we noted a few moments ago, there remains a remnant in the congregation, a few in verse 4 who have not soiled their garments. These few must have found the going tough amongst the dead wood of the congregation, like tender shoots pushing up through the arid, hardened soil. And Jesus urged those who have some life left to reach out to those about to die, to nurture them as plants that desperately need to be watered or dying embers that needed to be fanned into flame. Calls them to be strong, for the sake of others. Then thirdly, he says, think back. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. The word translated received is used over and over, particularly by John in his Gospels and in his letters. And now here, as to the way in which the truth of the Gospel is believed. The Greek refers to not to what you received and heard, not the content, but the how, that is, the force and the power with which that word came to you. Remember that. Jesus is urging them to bring to mind the compelling force that marked the arrival of the gospel. At Sardis, it must have been at some point like it was in Thessalonica, When those who believe the gospel believe not as the word of man, but as the word of God, coming to them with the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And in remembering, they might recall how, through the power of his word, Jesus assembled and brought together a congregation in that city. And by telling them this, he's telling them how to be alive again. That's the point. He can cause the same to happen again. Wake up, strengthen what remains and remember how you received the word and heard it and what it did among you. Fourthly, he says, do more than simply remember. He calls them to press on, to obey and to keep that word. He doesn't call them to some kind of Church history nostalgia, just looking back to the glory days of the past, forever in the past, it's more than that. They are to remember, but they are to bring what they remember into the present. That is, they are to keep on being faithful, even though the flame around them is burning low. And then Jesus calls them to repent, to turn back, fifthly, He urges them to bring their secret sin into the light, to turn away from standards taught by the world or a failure to attend to the preaching of the word or the neglect of spiritual life. These are all searching words, aren't they? They're not pleasant words. They're not words we long to hear. In fact, they're about as pleasant as a surgeon's knife. Important. Necessary, but not pleasant. They remind us of how Jesus often assessed the religious and the self-righteous Pharisees as being all outward show, but nothing of substance, all talk and no walk, a facade, a veneer. And such people, if they are calling themselves believers, must be the worst kind of believers there can be You know the term, nominal, in name only. And Jesus, in calling this church to repentance, calls the church everywhere to repentance, for he sees the dead wood among the living branches, and he knows the fake fruit from the real. He himself said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? And to them are given the most awful words. Depart from me, I never knew you. Then third, on a more encouraging note, uh, Jesus told them of the certain promise of victory in verses 4 to 6. The letter to the church at Sardis is one of the shortest of the seven letters and you can see simply by looking at it that nearly half of what Jesus says relates to the promises he gives to those who hear his word. And in short, what he says is that they they will find victory over sin and deadness through this path of repentance. And the glorious message of the gospel is just that, isn't it? Repentance is always going to bring us to victory and to life. Forgiveness is always there for the repentant something which is never available to those who refuse to give up their sin. A place among those who have not soiled their garments is therefore promised to those who have repented. He says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Note a couple of things. For one, Jesus gives them the promise that he will make them clean, signified by the term white garments. Think about that in relation to other chapters of the book of Revelation. Those clothed in white. Who are they? Then he says he will give them life, permanent and enduring life in union with him, never blotting out their names from his book. And then he says he will confess their name before his father. And this promise is the reverse of the usual. The New Testament urges us to go about confessing his name, living under his lordship. But here we are told that he will confess our name before the father and the countless company of angels in glory. And he will claim us as his own and he will do this for those who hear his voice and repent and get this even if the church they belong to is dead collectively even if their own spiritual life is dead also individually this is his promise to the church now and to you now though you may be running on empty though you may be be low in terms of zeal, though you may be fading in terms of brightness of your spark, if you will heed his warning and turn back to him, by his grace you can walk in white among the company of the cleansed in an eternal home. What then? Let it sink in that Sardis was a dead church. Hear these words from one author. I knew the patient before she died. It was ten years ago. She was very sick at the time but she did not want to admit it. She never got better but slowly and painfully deteriorated and then she died. She is, of course, a church. One of the defining marks of a dying church is that the people in it don't realise that they're dying. They don't know they're on a one-way journey to the ecclesiastical morgue. There's enough about the church that makes it seem alive and worth showing up to each week, but the symptoms of death might continue. What might those symptoms be? Well, there are many that might sound the death knell to a church and we would be wise to note them before it's too late. Let me give you a few that might lead you to think of others. Death is in the side of a church... When we've lost our sense of mission to those who have not heard the gospel. Death is in the sight of a church when we exist primarily to provide fellowship for ourselves. Death is in the sight of the church when we overlook the needs of the one outside of our walls or our gates. Death is in the side of the church when we're more focused on the past than the future. Death in the side of the church when we have major forms of conflict that do not get resolved. Death is in the side of the church when we care more about the bottom line of the financial statement than the number of conversions. Death is in the sight of the church when the prayer meeting ceases to happen. and This is where we have to get close up and personal and we have to ask the question that the disciples asked of Jesus at the Last Supper. Is it me, Lord? Does the description fit me? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Does the cap fit? Am I the one that needs reviving? Am I the one that needs to hear this message, this warning, this call to come to you for life? If it is true of you, let him know. It's so vital that we are honest before the Lord. No games, no hypocrisy, no masks. I don't mean medical ones. If the cap fits, own it. Confess that it is so. Hear the promise of God through Isaiah the prophet. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let him... Call upon him while he is near. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Life comes only from the life giver. And that's his promise. Life for the dead. Let's seek the Lord while he may be found, let's turn to him. Let's pray for revival among us and the church everywhere. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us, which comes as a double-edged sword Both to convict and to encourage. Thank you that as we read of this church in Sardis, we read of you who saw right through its walls, into its very heart. You who declared it to be dead, but you who can make it live again. And for this, we thank you so much that a dead church is not the end as long as you are in the picture. And we pray for the revival of your work in each heart, in each soul, in each church, here in this city, here in this presbytery, in this region, Here in this state, in this country, in this hemisphere, in this world. Lord Jesus, revive your church, we pray. And where it is dead, breathe life. And where there is sin, help us to repent and find life again through your wonderful gospel for which we give you thanks and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.